0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. the center of innovation is here, and you know, this is part of the message of Project Kashmir of this whole podcast, that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level.
1: I think all those people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources, and we can take advantage of the really low costs here.
0: You know, Poland is the land of opportunity and I I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. So, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night, whatever time of day or night it is, Project Kashmir listener. And for our Facebook Live audience, I guess the same thing applies if you're here in Europe. Um, having I hope we, all, we we hope you're having a good uh, Saturday morning. Um, so, today we've got a very interesting guest on the show, Alexandra Pedrashevska. I hope I pronounced your name correctly, Ola. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and um, just while, um, while I'm... Uh, sharing this live a little bit with other audiences if you could just uh introduce yourself in the same way you would if you met someone at a social event a networking event or indeed a party and they ask you that that fabulous question okay who are you and what do you do sure
1: um so yeah good morning everyone um my name is Alexandra and um I'm um recording this podcast from London uh, where I work for a deep technology startup VividQ. I'm one of the co-founders of VividQ. Um, We've been working on this project since February 2017, started when I was still back in Cambridge, completing my master's at Cambridge Judge Business School. Um, And uh, yeah, the company focuses on on developing software solutions for next generation uh, display, mostly focusing on holographic display. Uh, other than that, um, I uh, am still quite active in the uh, Polish entrepreneurial slash uh, technology community. Uh, I support an organization called uh, Plugin Polish Innovation Diaspora, um, and basically try to meet as many um, ambitious uh, young Polish people as possible, uh, supporting them sometimes with their applications for universities as well.
0: Okay, that's a, that's a good introduction. Thank you. And um, we first met. I, well in fact we met online for a LinkedIn group I think that's when I first saw your name but we first met face to face I believe in in Warsaw can you describe the it was I think Google campus Warsaw could you just d- describe that event
1: yeah sure um, so um, yeah I was actually in Warsaw for a couple of weeks um, in September so um, one of the um, one of the uh, aims of um, say my visit back to Warsaw I'm originally from Warsaw but living in the UK for almost five years at the moment um, so I was trying to um, explore a little bit um, what's going on um, in the Warsaw ecosystem, uh, entrepreneurial and technology ecosystem. Um, and I, as a result, attended quite uh, quite a few events at Google Campus Warsaw, uh, which I think is an amazing space for, um, for such meetings. And one of those meetings um, was um, actually the one that we met at, I believe that it was, um, it was, Combining two occasions, I would say. So first of all, it was a meeting for Oxford and Cambridge freshers. So for students who have just started their journey uh, at Oxford and Cambridge. So uh, kind of welcome, welcoming them and, uh, and sharing some advice with them uh, was, one of the, um, was one of the reasons why we met at Google Campus. Another event was uh, related to uh, Cambridge Entrepreneurs that I hope uh, we will be able to talk about a little bit more today as well. Um, But, um, yeah, um, I think that at that point we we started chatting about Cambridge Entrepreneurs um, in more detail, um, as you mentioned, after exchanging some some messages uh, on LinkedIn group.
0: That's right. And um, one of the, I, at the, we call it CAM Entrepreneurs, which is a sort of abbreviation of Cambridge Entrepreneurs and <laughs> the, idea of, the idea of CAM Entrepreneurs is to support entrepreneurship among Cambridge University alumni, current students and others. And anyone who thinks about that for a moment will realise that and others is a slightly larger <laughs> group than either <laughs> Cambridge University alumni or um, or uh, indeed Cambridge uh, current students. And th- we have a sort of perspective that's also based on my experience here in Poland that uh, people aren't very good, we're not very good at exploiting our alumni networks. The Americans are fabulous. They have lots of activities. Mm-hmm. Everyone goes back and hangs out and communicates with their, the alumni from their groups. And in, in Poland, we used to have Mascha Klasa, which I, I guess yeah. still exists, but no one uses. So and by now. But, but, but there's... Um, there just isn't this tradition, you know, with uh, ageha uh, which is the main mining and metallurgy university here in Krakow, which which is a very, it's a great university. It's got an incredibly high ranking. They do have a bureau absolvent of, a, a, a club absolvent of, but they're so busy, they, uh, with doing whatever they do, they don't respond to emails or pick up the phone or have time to meet us. <laughs> and so we organise various entrepreneurship sport events. and I think the UK is a bit ahead of this but there still isn't this sort of very dynamic dynamic group so um so we decided to um combine forces with the polish student society from oxford university and the Polish student society from Cambridge University, um, who I, I would, it, would I be right in thinking they're somewhat more active than a lot of the other student societies in Cambridge. Because you you were at Cambridge, weren't you? What did you study and what did you read and um, what was your what was your thing there? That...
1: Sure. So yeah, I I matriculated um, at the University of Cambridge in twenty. So this is when I started my BA in Land Economy, uh, at Land Economy Department, uh, which is quite um, mysterious, I would say, especially for people outside of Cambridge. And since this is a very multidisciplinary department, uh, which um, I believe it's not always the case for, uh, for Oxford and Cambridge departments who tend to very much focus on their one area of specialisation, uh, while land economy was kind of spanning around um, three different areas. Um, so law, economics and environmental studies. Um, so um, par- partly because of this multidisciplinary um, character of, of land economy, I had a chance to Uh, learn a little bit more about public policy in the UK um, and um, something that is currently referred to as entrepreneurial or innovation policy. So basically uh, governmental initiatives that aim to support different technology hubs and technology um, initiatives um, in the UK, um, including um, initiatives like Digital Catapult or or, uh, I believe Manufacturing Catapult is one of them as well. Um, So, um, basically, um, yeah, having learned about those different initiatives, I decided to focus my um, my BA thesis on um, kind of public policy initiatives that aim to support uh, software development sector specifically. Um, And kind of on on the back of that, um, I decided to do my master's in technology policy at, um, at Cambridge Business School. Um, so this is uh, a little bit more kind of academic side of my Cambridge journey. Uh, but during my studies, I uh, I was also quite active in the in the Cambridge University Polish Society, as you mentioned. And um, I was actually a president for for a year. And so, so, you,
0: so you've learned English understatement. You you were quite active, in fact, you were president.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, let Let's put it this way.
0: <laughs> okay, but 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 um. I mean I mean we obviously, you obviously covered quite a lot of ground in that introduction, and maybe if we unpick that and move back to different parts of it, my perception is that the the Polish student society at both Oxford and Cambridge were so sort of like unusually large and active compared to quite a few other student societies and i don't and i don't, I actually first came across both not in not in Oxford or Cambridge but in Edinburgh where we were launching. Cam entrepreneurs, and they, there was the, there was a sort of meta society. There was the society, <laughs> the, the society of Polish student societies were having yes, an event, <laughs> uh, and I, my, my hypothesis was that perhaps because um, because when people arrive in a new country in large numbers as started happening. Um, I'm not quite sure when it all started, but certainly after the European Union entrance. Um, <laughs> Uh, but possibly before, uh, people needed a support group and somehow the Polish, there were both a lot of Poles and a a need for some kind of self-support network. But am I right in thinking that the Polish student societies might be quite a lot bigger than some of the traditional English student societies, or is that just a misconception?
1: Um, I think it's really interesting because um, I think in terms of uh, different nationalities at at Oxford and Cambridge, um, we are definitely a big group, but we are definitely smaller than in terms of the number of students, we are definitely smaller than, than the size of, of the German representation or um, or some of the Asian countries. I think in terms of Europe, definitely Germany, um, Spain, France, all of them, they have much bigger groups of students that are actually in uh, at those universities. Um, but um, you're definitely correct um, by saying that uh, our group is particularly visible, uh, both in terms of the amount of initiatives that Polish societies are involved in. And also um, I think the strength of the bond among the students is a re- as, as a result, very, very strong as well. Um, we, yeah, I've had a lot of discussions with um, my my Polish societies friends about why is that? Why are we actually um, such, why have we achieved this critical mass that still makes those societies You know, after three, four years of um, of presidencies of my friends, those societies are still extremely active. They still are looking for new initiatives. Uh, I think that the um, that the Congress of Polish Students is actually coming back to Oxford uh, this year as well after a couple of years. So um, it it really shows that it's not only specific for you know three, four. Kind of uh, cohorts or generations of students but it's something that is continuing and why is that um i think that um something that the polish society did very well was kind of realizing what people are looking um to get out of the national society so it's definitely um the support and kind of know how that that you mentioned but i think that some of those um key conferences that actually let uh, polish students in the uk um get to know the the Polish um, uh, kind of um, market as well. And, and the uh, the level of, uh, of involvement of Polish companies with those Polish societies is also, I think, unprecedented. And it can be partly because um, those students are considered uh, an amazing human capital that they're trying to attract back to Poland. Uh, but also for some reason, um, Polish companies are are just in general very supportive of, of all the Polish societies' initiatives in the UK. So I think that since we, we managed to create this bond with the, with the private sector, with the industry, uh, the support from the, from the embassy as well, uh, I think that this is something that generated this critical mass and still makes it very, very interesting for, for Polish students to join those societies. Um, And those are not only kind of business-focused initiatives, but um, one of the biggest conferences actually is focusing on Polish science, Science, science-polish perspectives is focusing very much on promoting um, Polish academics internationally.
0: Yeah, Yeah, because when I I was a a kid growing up, uh, a child growing up in Oxford where my father was teaching philosophy as part of PPE. Mm-hmm. Well, we were sort of family friends of a guy called Zbigniew Pelczynski who founded the yes. Oxbridge Society of Poland. And, you know, he was, he was uh, sort of promoting Polish related and Central European related activities back in the days of the USSR and was responsible for something called the Oxford Colleges Hospitality Scheme, which gave scholarships to academics, not just, Not just uh, from Poland, but for across Central and Eastern Europe, and um, but at that stage, you know, he had students, and there was a small Polish community, and I think people like Marek Matraszek, who now has a very effective lobbying organization uh, a guy called Radek Sikorski who has had quite a quite an illustrious career and um, has made some excellent speeches um, you know even historic speeches for example in in Berlin saying that Germany needed to refine its leadership role in Europe which is you know from a historical perspective a remarkable thing for a Polish foreign minister to say Um, in those days it was a tiny community but somehow Somehow, my my perspective is perhaps, you know, Poland was coming from a kind of clean sheet of paper, which is the advantage of, you know, obviously Poland has its historical legacy, which, you know, if I didn't mention this, um, maybe not legacy, Um, there were times in Poland's history when Poland was larger than it is now and um, incorrectly, in my view, was Perceived as a great empire, it was great in the sense of large, not great in terms of the standard of living of the people who lived there. But you know, there is this sort of historic perspective of Poland having had a great past, and but coming fr- after communism, people want to rebuild it as best they can. And so, you know, I was at an event in London, uh, chairing a panel, and I was astonished that Adam Gural, who's the CEO of Aseco and the founder of Aseco, which is this enormous Polish IT company, was ready to show up. And I think it would be quite hard. To get, you know, he's like, if you like, the Polish equivalent of, I'm not sure who, you know, Bill Gates, perhaps, just showing up for a student society. You know, he, uh, uh, a top American or or Brit might show up to. I don't, I don't want to be too hard on them. You know, show up to Davos or TED, but not to a student society mm-hmm. congress. So I, I think there is that that perception that people need to work together, and um, you know, I'm very very uh, happy about the idea that you you might be able to bring together the worlds of sort of CAM entrepreneurs, which is a global network, which has had meetings in New York, Edinburgh, London, Warsaw, Sydney, Australia, together with the Polish business diaspora, because I think the Polish business diaspora hasn't yet really been mobilized, you know, ever Mm -hmm. since communism, Poles have been heading out all over the world. I think it's true there are more Poles living in Chicago than in Warsaw, is that true?
1: Um, I think the second uh, biggest city is Chicago at the moment. So yeah. Um, yeah, they're probably if if it was bigger than Warsaw, that that could be worrying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well I've been I, I stand corrected. Um, I've been worrying for all these years, and now I, of course, here, here in Krakow, where m- many of our viewers are in in Krakow, um, the, the in Krakow stand up comedy, the the standard butt of every joke is a city. To the north of Krakow, between between Lublin and uh, Je, uh, Lublin and um, Bidgosh, called Baskara, Right, <laughs> but but um, you know we have a slight inferiority complex, or at least some of our viewers do. Uh, again, I'm inviting a storm of negative feedback here, but but, the, um, but there is this um, this uh, perception that not this perception this is this reality. There are Polish business people all over the world who quite often may have been brought up. You know with quite a negative image of Poland because their parents emigrated there's a kind of emigre complex of trying to look to sort of reject the country The sort of love hate relationship with the country you come from i don't know does does that does that um does that still exist? do you think that there's still a kind of emigre you know complex uh uh, among the Poles living that you know in your generation or can we finally say that we can put this this monster to bed or kill it off? Yeah, Yeah.
1: Um, that's difficult, difficult being in the UK I have lived uh, a little bit in this this little Cambridge bubble
0: so, 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 so you're looking you're looking down on everyone else rather than them looking down on you
1: <laughs> well yeah no i i think that if there was any inferiority um complex um here um of um of you know any nationality that's definitely not the case because as we said uh, we were extremely proud to um to actually um you know get together and 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 actually be very open and um about our nationality and actually be very proud proud about it and kind of trying to make it, um, to, to make a very strong point about um, about us uh, being Polish uh, at Cambridge. Um, but um, here in London um, I have so many um, interesting encounters with uh, people who, um, who are from London or who are very active in the entrepreneurial community saying, yes, my parents were Polish or my grandparents were Polish. And uh, even though, you know, there could be this love-hate relationship because their parents usually had to move because of some political situation or uh, because of the war. Uh, I think that there is still um, this very warm feeling towards towards the country for some reason. Um, actually, I just... Um, I just had a chat with uh, one of the co-founders of the co-working space where I work um, in Farringdon here in London. And it was extremely interesting to find out that actually his parents, um, he's from the Jewish family, they had to leave the country in 1938. Um, so they emigrated to the UK and he still has extremely warm um, kind of um, obviously never lived in, in, in Poland, but he still thinks very warmly about the country. And, you know, he told me that uh, his parents, they used to talk to each other in Polish if they didn't want their children to understand. And he still uh, remembers some of those sentences that his parents were exchanging, you know, kind of whispering in the corner where they, they were speaking about something that, that they didn't know their children to know, know about. So I think that um, I haven't really experienced, um, you know, any negativity uh, here. I think if if it really um, if it really is the case, um, it's sometimes among people who, who emigrated, um, you know, um, just um, just after we joined the European Union, and they had to emigrate because of the economic situation. So I think that, um, you know, if, if you had to leave the country because you didn't believe that there is, uh, there is any future for, it, for you in it, um, I think that it definitely results in, in some negative connotations or kind of um, negative feelings towards the country.
0: That's interesting. I, I, we don't want to spend too much time on this, but I'm, I'm just taking this opportunity to flash up a, a link to something called the, um, the JCC Entrepreneurs Club. Which um, here in Krakow, we've got the Jewish Community Center, and I persuaded them to set up a, an Entrepreneurs Club. So we're always on the lookout for for potential for potential speakers, and um, you know maybe maybe and quite often for reasons we won't go into on this podcast. Uh, just as some poles are surprised to hear about how how dynamic the business community is here in here in Poland. the same thing the same thing applies to people from the from the jewish community and there's um like let's say we're just we're just beginning this um this whole initiative we've had a few meetings but um entrepreneurs club at jtc i posted a link in the comments underneath here so if someone's interested um certainly when you show this video if you share this video with with him Mm -hmm. or her this founder maybe we can invite them to krakow and talk about their co-working space in, in london um and one um, what, what part of um, one of the focuses of Project Kashmir is obviously entrepreneurship and innovation, and we're interested in the what we call the entrepreneurial journey because clearly, clearly. Quite often, uh, you know, family and friends. If someone's doing well at high school in their lead and they go to a good university, there's an expectation of a nice, stable job in the sort of companies that sponsor our cam entrepreneurs events, like Bain yeah. Consulting Group or you know, McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or, or Morgan Stanley or whoever. And this is not what you're doing at the moment. So, was it was it um, was it something you always wanted to do? And what, how did your family? react when you told them you were going to start a business rather than rather than you know work for the Ministers for Sprav Zagranich?
1: Well um in my case um I think fortunately it was actually quite a smooth transition. So um it wasn't the case that I finished my masters, I sat down with my laptop in some hipster cafeteria and I figured out that I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And this was a little bit more um I would say, uh, it, it was some kind of progression uh, what happened. So um, the the history, I think, is quite interesting, since um, the company um, it originated from, from the academic research um, at the university. It's not officially a spin-off, but um, kind of a very major part of um, our IP um, has been uh, created as part of the academic research at the Photonics Institute um, at Cambridge. Um, that uh, one of our co-founders, um, Andrei Kaczorowski, was heavily involved in um, when completing his PhD. Um, and also when completing his PhD, he at the same time started working at um, a little bit more, I would say, um, entrepreneurial project um, that also uh, was happening at the Photonics um, Institute. It's called CAPE, uh, if anyone wanted to, to look up the institute itself. Maybe um,
0: maybe you could send a link afterwards and we'll post it in the show notes because yes, we, yes, we, we, that, that um, will certainly...
1: I'll post when, it in the comments. Um, so, um, yeah, at that point, um, at, do, uh, at that point, um, uh, Andrei started working on um, on the project around um, holographic data compression. So holography is um, his area of specialization, um, um, optical engineering, we'll with, um, with focus on holography. Um, and um, basically at that point um, I, I learned about the, the work that they've been doing and uh, basically that uh, the idea is to, to commercialize um, this particular piece of innovation that they came up with. Um, and um, basically as part of the preparation, and I think this is really interesting, as part of Andre's preparation for Science Polish Perspectives presentation, uh, I learned about um about this idea that they're going to commercialize um commercialize this piece of software. And this was at that point when I started to work with Andrzej and Darren who used to um head the, the research group um that Andre was was working at. Um, and kind of from this you know little support project, because I was in the business school so I could help a little bit with how to present this idea so it becomes a little bit more uh, understandable to people outside of the specific area of interest. Um, I'm sure you're very well aware that people who have been working in one area of research, um, they, they usually have some assumptions about whether people will be able to understand what they're presenting or not. Uh, very often it needs to be a very very basic explanation for people to actually get a grasp of what the innovation is all about. So, kind of uh, from, from starting to work on, on the presentation, then um, kind of meeting um, some angel investors that were in, uh, interested in supporting um, what then wasn't called VividQ um, at the project, the name of the, of the company basically, um, we agreed on it only in February 2017, but I've been aware of what they were working on since around November 2016. And um, so kind of from this, you know, little collaboration at the university between the, the, um, the research group and between myself studying technology policy at, at Judge Business School. Um, we basically created a company, which I think is, is a really interesting, which, which is a really interesting story um, because effectively I've been already working on VividQ um, when still doing my master's. So for me it was a really easy decision to basically stay with the company rather than to set up a new company after my studies. Um so I think that this decision it was obviously still difficult and startup is a very high risk environment and um and you know you usually end up doing everything by yourself uh, rather than having this entire process and strategy and support system. Um but I think that for me the decision was was um, was really obvious when I graduated. We um, we were already uh, very um, very strongly believing in in VividQ. So I think that you know it hasn't changed since then. So uh, I think I I may call myself quite lucky.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not that you're, you're lucky. lucky. Sorry, I'm Sorry, just going gonna... to keep that. that no, no. No. I'm wondering why that's happening. It didn't happen earlier. Um, by the way, I noticed that Tom Nolan, who's active in Cam Entrepreneurs in Warsaw, is watching, and uh, David McGear, who taught me how to use this so- software. So welcome, welcome. And if our online viewers want to ask questions, just fathom in the, fire them in the comment thread below. Um, what I was going to say was, I, I understand the later process, and you went to you went to business school after doing. After the Judge Business School, after doing your um, your um, uh, land economy degree, but I'm, I'm thinking more a bit earlier in your life. You know, when you were a teenager or when you were a child. You know, did you? Uh, what? When was the first time you thought about what you might want to do with your life? And did that include the idea of being involved in a tech startup? Because uh, you know, the the possibility of actually getting a salary and being involved in starting a startup is relatively new maybe maybe it was already a thing when you were a, a child but quite often you know it's only when you get to university you suddenly discover you meet people who who don't have a conventional career when did yeah. you first start meeting people who who were doing the sort of thing you're doing now and thinking hmm, i could do that too but even but that's the second question the first question when when did you first start thinking about what you might want to do with your life and did it include doing what you're doing now
1: okay. so um definitely not at all so um I actually come from a from a family from, from a very medical family. So both my parents are doctors. Um my um my um my godfather is a lawyer, my godmother is a doctor as well. So basically I have always been surrounded with extremely, I would say, traditional professions. Um so it was basically for me very early on. It was a decision between: do I want to be a doctor or do I want to be a lawyer? And I'm and I'm not even even joking. It was basically that, that was it. And it wasn't imposed by my parents by any by any way. It was just something I believe, believed in. So um, I think that the moment I decided that I uh, probably enjoy um, you know debating and I enjoy um, social sciences a little bit more. And um, in general i I found myself very fascinated by by lawyer's career in general. I actually started land economy with um, with a belief that um, I'll become a lawyer um, so land economy was just a way for me to combine law with um, some different areas of study so I didn't want to study study law per se um, since obviously studying law uh, in the u k would mean that I would be Quite um, limited in terms of um, the number of countries I would be able to uh, I would be able to pursue this profession um, but combining law with with economics with environmental studies it gave me a little bit more i was hoping and actually that was the case that it will give me a little bit more perspective on on what law means in in those different areas, so how it can be useful for for some environmental policy, or how it's um, what, what's what's the meaning of of legal profession for in, international institutions um, like like European Union or or United um, Nations. Um, and it wasn't actually until I started working on my BA thesis that I thought that this may not be the best idea, or there are other things that interest me probably more than pure law um, and when I started working um, on, on this and as part of it I interviewed over 30 companies, software development companies in Cambridge uh, and also throughout my undergraduate degree I was obviously surrounded by extremely scientific, um, technical, uh, innovative community of the University of Cambridge itself and the city of Cambridge itself. Um, and, and I, I just found new technologies in general, extremely fascinating, um, even though I was still studying a social science sciences um, degree. Um, so I would say that probably the idea of actually, um, like seriously working in technology sector, and it's not even thinking about starting a startup in the technology sector, but working in the technology sector, I think that it, probably crossed my mind only in the third year of my undergraduate degree when i was working on this thesis and kind of getting to know the software development ecosystem Um, so so yeah and i mean this is this is what influenced my decision to do masters straight away after my undergrad as well because um you know i felt like if i really want to pursue this career path i need to know more about about technology itself and how the sector works and what our technology what does technology policy and technology management actually mean. <clears throat> so
0: okay, um, you yeah. just, just to interrupt I see just, that yeah, yeah, one, one of our, one our viewers, viewers, Daniel, Daniel. Mika, who again we're having um, uh, who founded a machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, uh, group at his uh, technicum in krakow and has organized a sort of school entrepreneurship club is watching and he's he's just commented amazing company i love this technology so you have um, <laughs> you've, you you're, you're developing a a fan base and if you if there's anything to do with machine learning or artificial intelligence in your software then there's a a very dynamic uh, group of uh teenagers in uh Krakow looking for interesting internships even remote ones because they sure. started they started coming to our events in in Krakow and inviting people into the high school so I that that may be a side thing but um that's a connection I'd be happy to make um so I did but your um so so you what you did your undergraduate degree as part of that uh, your your final year. Uh, project or thesis you were meeting software companies and it dawned on you that maybe a maybe a startup and then uh you went to the judge business school but you didn't exactly you you corrected me you didn't do an MBA but you were at business school which yeah, again so, some, some
1: it was a degree master of of philosophy degree um in technology policy, policy specifically so um so basically one of the reasons why I went to business school wasn't to kind of get better business and administration skills, or uh, I, I thought that if I really want to do it, I'll probably um, still have time to do it in the future. Uh, why I did my info in technology policy um, with with some parts of, of management of technology was, um, was basically to um, kind of ground my, my, my belief or my early belief that this is something that I really feel uh, comfortable working with, or this is something that really interests me. Um, just to make sure that it wasn't, you know, a little hype that I created in my head doing this, doing this thesis and talking to those companies, but that it's actually something that I could tangibly develop into my career path. Um, and it became the case. Um, I imagine that if I, if I didn't, um, if I didn't um, kind of um, get involved in VividQ. Um, early on during my master's Um, I'm not entirely sure if I would um, start off by working for a startup or creating a startup Um, it's very highly likely that I would decide to work for for some big name in technology sector um, in the very beginning Um, but I think that already at that point I was thinking that you know those big technology companies they're no they're not that much different from any management consulting company or from any big corporation that I could be working for straight away after my undergrad, if I wanted to go into finance or if I wanted to go into law. So um, I think that, but um, yeah, it was a little bit by, I, w- I was partly lucky, but um, partly I think that I already knew that those big tech corporations, they're not that much different from anything else out there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, uh, Maybe what you thought, but I would imagine that you're possibly aware that life in a startup is slightly different from working for other little or PA <laughs> technology. PA technology. Well, so when you were thinking of the big consulting companies, you were thinking you might have been in the technology part of, you know, McKinsey, Accenture, Bain, or PA technology. That was what you had in mind, or, or?
1: Uh, it's hard to say. To be honest, I think that um, in general, um, the process of choosing your career following your studies. Um, I, I don't I still don't think that people make that many informed decisions. Obviously, um at university you have a chance to do the, those summer internships, you have a chance to go to different corporate events and, and meet those companies. But in the end, um I don't really think that, you know, being at twenty, twenty-two or twenty-three years old um and choosing where to go first after your you finish your, your studies, um I don't think you are capable of making a particularly informed decision. So um, I probably at that point wouldn't be able to say, you know, what what is a major difference between a consulting, between a tech um, team in the management consulting company versus a public policy team in one of the big technology companies. Um, I think that usually those decisions are not that informed as we would like. so, yeah, this, this, this would be my general comment, since, since like, my, my response to your question would probably be I don't really know because I didn't know at that point.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. So, well, I mean, and, you know, but that's also um, when, and although it hasn't gone online yet, you, I know you were interested to know what um, know what uh, Alex van Sommeren of Amadeus Capital said he's going to be the next podcast that goes online. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't do a facebook live with him I interviewed him face to face and he we were talking about opportunity and he said that you know that's you know we were talking about the role of luck in luck in business and he said that you know one of the distinguishing uh features of an entrepreneur is a sort of state of mind where they're open to opportunity as it passes by because you never know when it's going to be. It's just like you could bump into someone who's who at that moment desperately yeah. needs someone with your skill set and they're ready to offer you co-founding status or or you could bump into someone who could become a key customer or investor or or vendor or partner. So so um, for from that point of view I don't know if you could say you were. Do you, do you feel lucky that you, because that, one of the things I remembered when we first met, you were talking to Peter Cowley, um, who's an experienced tech, tech investor in, in Cambridge, and he was grilling you about the technology behind uh, vivid VividQ. And mm-hmm. I was pretty impressed by how well you dealt with that, given that you weren't an engineer. And, you know, it's being the non-technical person in a technical company can be quite Challenging, and yeah. do you feel comfortable in that role?
1: Well, so yes, that's that's definitely true. I'm the only non-technical founder, and um, basically all but one of the co-founders, they actually have PhDs in uh, areas ranging from holographic engineering through theoretical maths to quantum physics. So I would probably say that it can be overwhelming in terms of you know the amount of knowledge that is just filling the room when sitting with those guys. But I also find it extremely exciting. And I think that this also means that I can learn something new every day. So, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be particularly related to the technology that we are developing because uh, this ground we probably covered, um, most of this ground we probably covered when I was asking technical questions, when I wanted to know how the product works, when I wanted to um, know everything about the implementation. I think that the key to that is being curious. So I feel like I'm curious enough to get reasonable responses to all those technical questions. Um, But in general, I think that, um, you know, it's it's just a really fascinating environment I find. Um, So for a person that uh, doesn't have technical background, um, you know, asking right questions to people who have extremely high technical knowledge um, they actually love explaining those things to anyone who asks. I think that not many people ask for some reason, whether they are concerned by, you know, not understanding the answer or being concerned about being perceived as stupid or someone who, you know, if you ask a question, you don't know something. So basically asking question questions means that you're revealing some parts of your knowledge that you don't have. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that as long as you're curious, then, then it's extremely fascinating for a non-technical person to work for a deep tech startup.
0: Yeah, because I know having been through this experience myself, my background was economics at Cambridge. And then my first businesses, I feel one of my lucky breaks in life was going into business with Polish engineers in the early 1990s. And I remember my technical service manager going off for training with one of our American vendors on service training because when we we were selling you know, technology hardware in Poland and if it went wrong, we had to fix it. Right. And he said that there was a big divide between the Central Europe, it wasn't just the Polish engineers, but all the engineers who came from what you might call the ex-Soviet region of Europe, when right. they went off for service training, they were wanting to understand how the machines worked and not just how to repair them whereas Mm -hmm. the west europeans wanted to wanted to just like they were service engineers just like well you need to swap out this component and this is this is this is how you fix it not how does it work and at that stage i got i think possibly a slightly misleadingly positive image of how much better the central european engineers were and my exposure to the cambridge community has mm-hmm. like re because when i was at cambridge i didn't really hang out with technical people at yeah. all they were a different type of person but i, I think <laughs> but I, are, are you at the level where you you really understand how, how the how the technology works or are you more at the level of explaining why it's useful and what it's for do you think or do you have to do both
1: well, I try to do both. Um, I obviously wouldn't be able to, you know, explain different parts of our patents, or I wouldn't want to because it's a proprietary knowledge. <laughs> but uh, I think that I um, I am comfortable enough to the level that, um, like one one good example is that at some point when we were still establishing our partnership with Intel. Um, it wasn't usually clear whether we'll be speaking to someone on the commercial side or on the technical side on the end of the call. Um, and I, ha- I had one call that I did by myself and it was a while back. So it was still when I knew much, much less about technology than I probably do today. Um, and we thought that it's going to be a commercial call. So I didn't ask any technical team member to join. But it turned out that this particular product manager, he has extremely uh, heavy, um, heavy technical background himself. And he was much more interested in speaking about the technology itself rather than, you know, how we can progress with the partnership or how we could could build the um, how we could build the commercial relationship. So um, I think that after that call when I ended up explaining the majority of our um, software modules to. So that person I uh, I probably arrived at the conclusion that I'm comfortable enough with the technology to actually get a little bit more into details and you know not being particularly anxious to to always have some some heavily technical person with me on the call. Uh, And I think it's really important, this is something that's you know, this is this is very much an underlying assumption of how we train our people in the commercial team kind of giving them this confidence that um, giving them a lot of knowledge, which then um, basically translates into confidence um, to talk to other people about technology, not just the commercial side or the applications.
0: Yeah, and there's two two, two comments on this. One is that, you know, sometimes it's good to have, non-technical people in the room who are asking very basic questions like, well, you know, what's it for? Why is it useful as opposed to, you know, because engineers and technical people can get so focused on the wonderful technical elegance of what they're doing there. They're not, they're no longer thinking about, the fact that all technologies are basically only trying to do two things: they're enabling people to do things they couldn't do before, mm-hmm. or and they're enabling people to do things faster and cheaper and at higher quality than they could do yeah. them before. So, you know, that that's the underlying rationale of all technical progress. And you know, if it, if it's not better or cheaper, then what's the and faster? What's the point? And um, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, it's it's really. Um, it's really important to have a situation where um, people are both so uh, they're properly trained and aware of what what they're offering on the other hand they're not afraid to say I don't know you know yeah. Einstein Einstein said that he stands on the shoulders of giants he didn't he didn't need to know it all himself and that's a, that's a thing that goes back and, and a self-confident person will never Um, say they have to know everything. I just see you've been invited to speak at a high school in Krakow in the comments, the comments, the comments screen. I'll be
1: in Krakow next time, but um, I'll probably on a longer visit. (laughs) uh,
0: uh, Yeah. And um, in terms of the, in terms of what your technology is for, we won't, we won't cover the, how it works on, on this call. If there's a, if there's a hard tech podcast out there who wants to understand more about the deep technology. I, I posted a link to the, in fact, there's a link on screen at the moment to the software so people can read more about it, um, not on this uh, podcast. But um, in terms of what it's for, uh, what does the, what problems does the, um, VividQ solve?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so... There are a couple of elements to it. So I think that the most important one is that um, in terms of um, kind of next generation technologies that will be available to us off the shelf, uh, usually um, those technologies are being developed in research and development labs of hardware manufacturers way before their product becomes available, of course. Um, And an interesting insight uh, in terms of what is currently happening in those R&D labs is that the majority of them are looking for the new, more effective display technology. So um, we all currently use two dimensional screens, just flat panel screens, and this is something we are are used to um, in terms of using them as as consumers. but there are already approaches to um, how we can represent information as it actually um, exists in the real world. So we live in the three-dimensional world and everything around us has three coordinates, x, y, z. So looking at representations of those objects or representations of this world on a two-dimensional screen is actually very limiting. So we already had, you know, um, approaches to, to that with stereoscopic technologies in 3D cinemas. We um, we try to uh, in, introduce augmented reality to our phones but still looking at those images on two-dimensional screens. Um, so what VividQ is working on and what we are solving is how you can create the most effective three-dimensional display possible. Um, and the technology to achieve that um, is known as diffractive holography. Holography unfortunately has been used and abused um, in pop culture and by many, many big hardware manufacturers to the extent now that holography seems like something we are really familiar with, but I, I, can, I can guarantee that you've never actually seen a holographic display. Um, and for you to be able to see it, um, VividQ needs to collaborate with hardware manufacturers to put those holographic displays um, on on the on the media market shelves or or into your devices. Um, so VividQ is solving a very specific problem uh, that is related to how we calculate how the image needs to be uh, presented on the screen. So you can think of us as an operating system for the next generation display technology.
0: Okay, so so your your clients are obviously. Uh what do you call b2b so they're large the r&d departments of large large companies and uh, you already mentioned intel so that's not, obviously not confidential Are there other 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 partners you're working with or, or maybe it is confidential <laughs> you made a mistake you made a mistake I, um,
1: I, I, yeah i don't tend to make make those mistakes so no intel is um is um one of the companies we can mention um we um yeah you definitely um kind of um it's definitely true that um, majority of our partnerships are actually under extremely strong non-disclosure um, agreements. So those I cannot discuss. Uh, a few I can. So um, with with Intel, um, as you're well aware, uh, for kind of the um, any consumer device at the moment to for, for this to be um, to be working uh, efficiently and kind of meeting your expectations. Um, the majority of software can be found on, um, on can be found on very specific uh, uh, chips or um, or or very specific uh, ASICs that are running your device. Uh, so this is something that um, we are working on with with Intel, since they very much believe that holographic display is the next generation display technology. Um, we work um, with companies who actually produce components for end devices. One of them is HiMax. Um, It's a massive display uh, manufacturer uh, from Asia, uh, and they actually supplied majority of display components for the previous edition of Microsoft HoloLens. So this is a very exciting partnership for us as well. Um, Other than that, um, we also um, have very interesting conversations with content producers. So uh, you can imagine that for, for companies who, who aim to present content in the most effective way, including CADs, so those systems that allow you to uh, create um, prototypes of your products. Or for the gaming companies who are looking for more immersive, more exciting experiences, they are also very much looking forward to what the next generation display technology is going to be. So um, we already have full compatibility with Unity, which is the biggest gaming engine uh, in the world. Uh, we are also an official partner of SolidWorks, so one of the CAD companies who basically allow you to make um, to make prototypes of basically anything anything you want. CADs are used by by architects, by car uh, designers, by uh, by people designing kind of everyday products that we can buy from IKEA so this is um, this is a very exciting area for us as well to collaborate on um, but obviously the main focus of our um, of our commercial team is on those hardware uh, manufacturers that are extremely secretive in terms of what they are working on so I can't get into details of those
0: okay well you gave us so that gives an idea and if you can talk about the the business model obviously and, we, and i know this because we had a conversation prior to this one but are you, you have some investors already um yeah. are you, excuse me are you able to get revenue from your your partners at the moment because it's quite quite often the experience of talking to big companies they say sure come and show us your new technology but as it's a kind of sales sales situation they're not very keen to pay just to hear what you can offer them so are you managing to monetize at all in terms of money from your customers are you living off investor money and do you need any and this may be an opportunity do you need any more money from investors or clients right now
1: um sure so starting on on how vivid Q is actually funded so um as for every Deep technology company obviously need to invest quite a lot of um, money into actual R&D product development um, into the best possible talent um, in in this particular technology sector. So um, we have done that uh, with uh, seed funding from the syndicate of angel investors uh, that we secured around February 2017. So exactly when when VividQ started. And um, the amount of, of seed investment uh, currently um, is around 2.2 uh, million pounds. So um, this is um, um, for I would say new wow. standards. It's a rather significant seed round, um, but this allowed us to get to the point when we are revenue generating at the moment. So. Um, so we work with those hardware manufacturers still on the proof of concept project basis, but those are paid projects, and they are also purchasing our software to be able to complete those projects um, effectively. Um, so, um, so we are already revenue generating, but obviously the um, the key business model is not going to realize itself until the devices are actually on the market, since our key business model is focusing on software licensing. So when devices become available um, basically to to end consumers, we are going to be part of those devices, charging uh, a little royalty on every device um, that is sold. So it's a little bit similar to the Dolby model. So um, I'm not sure if everyone is aware, but everyone when buying a smartphone or or your laptop, you're actually paying a little royalty to Dolby to be able to have this amazing sound system that you're using um, in all of your devices. So um, hopefully all, all holographic devices in the future will have a bit of, of vivid unit.
0: Little plug for my, my, my old college that Dolby was a research fellow at Pembroke College, Cambridge, and mm-hmm. there was a room in Pembroke College, Cambridge called the Dolby Room. Yeah. And I, I wanted to book it for a party. And I, I tried to make a joke about there wouldn't be any problem with noise because Dolby's main technology was noise reduction back then. And I thought my joke was great. And the college secretary who was allocating rooms just stared at me with this dead fish stare. And my, my Dolby noise reduction, noise reduction joke didn't work. But Dolby recently left a large amount of money to Cambridge University. I think it was one of the biggest donations they ever got.
1: So VividQ is currently uh, privately funded uh, by a syndicate of angel investors. Um, So we raised around 2.2 million um, pounds uh, for kind of technology development and getting to the point where we can commercialize. Um, But we are currently raising another round since, as I mentioned, those POC projects that we are uh, completing with our customers um, while they're paid. Um, it's probably still uh, not enough capital inflow for us to get to the point where we can really focus on on commercializing VividQ technology, still being technology evangelists for holographic display in general, and obviously for still making sure that our technology is state of, of the art and that all our uh, software solutions uh, for for holography are at the forefront of of what's happening in the market. So we are currently raising a 3 million um, pre-stage A round or stage A round. I think definitions vary, especially between the UK and and the US. Um, So um, yeah, the 3 million rounds uh, should get us to the point where um, our business model will become, um, become much more sustainable um, thanks to those software licenses that we'll be generating through our current hardware uh, partnerships.
0: Great. Um, one of the questions coming on the, on the um, comment channel from uh, uh, was: Are you working with e-commerce fashion segment?
1: We don't really work directly with uh, kind of providers of end applications yet. And since um, it's still the technology that requires some actual hardware development for, um, for end users or creators of end applications to be, to be able to use it, um, But this is definitely the case that, um, that e-commerce is also investing and in looking into exciting new ways of presenting their products or advertising their products. Um, and I think that um, fully holographic displays in kind of shop windows or used at um, high end promotional events um, is, is going to be a huge market. Um, but for that to happen, we basically would need to have the complete device that then uh, could be used at those events or basically in those spaces. So this is still. Um, kind of a, a 12, 14 month um, development on the side of the of the actual device makers to be able to get to that stage. So um, so definitely an interesting area but um, not applicable straight away.
0: Yes, I and mean, yes, that's certainly done actually working with M research applications at, at the moment. Um, and um, you know, j- just sort of thinking about where where you might be going with this in say the three, five, seven? Do you you didn't have a clear view of your future in the past, and you you said that you didn't know when you were job hunting. Do you know where where this project might take you in three, five, seven years? Would you expect to sell the company once you, or or could you imagine be doing this when you're, you know, in ten, twenty, thirty years time, or is it really hard to say? I know that's a tricky question.
1: Yeah, it is a tricky question, and I think it's always. Um... I mean, there are always two ways for for a startup to um, to look at its future. So one of them, um, like our our genuine belief, is that um, if if we become a major um, a major player in the display industry or the major software provider for next consumer electronics devices, um, there is. There is basically nothing stopping this company from becoming the next, the next Arm or the next Dolby. Um, so making sure that we we realize this vision, we, we are making everything, or we're trying to do everything to to realize this vision. And we definitely we would love to see it happening. And if it happens, then you know you you would see me doing VividQ in the next fifteen years, but probably in a slightly different role than than now, you know, kind of trying to get as many customers as possible. Um, but um, obviously another exit scenario of um, of of some, some major major acquisition, um, it's obviously something that is always up in the air. Um, and it's always, you know, the question of of how 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 strong our position is currently in the market versus um, what could be the potential gain of, of the acquisition. Um, I don't. I don't think that this is this is a question that can be answered by any startup founder until they actually have a you know a, a clear proposal on the table or uh, until they actually start believing that this is heading towards the IPO.
0: Yes, I mean the perspective I've always had is that the you know as a as a business co-founder as a business leader concentrate on. Making a successful business and then different opportunities arise as a result of that and one of them if you're successful and cash generative is carrying on and then but there always might be some interesting partnership or exit that comes along because the business is successful. But if the business isn't successful, then then the the options ultimately are rather rather limited. Um, So that makes perfect sense. Just uh, just before we close was with the breaks. We try to keep these conversations around an hour and I appreciate you've given an hour of your your, your valuable life to us so that's much appreciated um, in terms of um, the future of uh, Vivid Q is there anything that anyone listening should know is there anything anyone could do to help you or um, is there anything you can do to help anyone listening it's so like either a give or take um, from from the audience because this is your opportunity
1: Sure. Um, so I think in terms of um, in terms of um, the give first, um, we um, are actually in quite an exciting time at the company when um, we will start taking our technology out of the lab um, of VividCure, out of hardware manufacturers' lab, to actual audiences. So. Uh, at Augmented World Expo in Munich two weeks ago, um, we made the first demonstration of our holographic headset prototype. And this is um, this is quite exciting since it really does give you a different experience from what you currently can um, have with Microsoft HoloLens or Magic Leap. So if there are people who are really excited about augmented mixed reality, then definitely um, send me an email and um, I would love to arrange a demonstration. Um, or if you're uh, curious what uh, is going to happen in the display industry in the next couple of years. Um, on the other hand, um, you know we are always um, looking for um, for for people to support us on both kind of commercial and the technical side. So um, we are planning to um, make significant um, number of openings for both of our teams. so, if anyone listening is Kinto um is, is a, an extremely keen software developer, um you know, happy to consider continuing their career in Cambridge or uh if there is anyone excited about software sales and would love to uh work with me in London, uh it's always something that's that is worth um worth talking talking about, I think
0: great um so well thank you for that and obviously in the in the show notes on the podcast we'll 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 put your linkedin and other ways you're happy for people to get in touch with you um fi- finally just uh, before we close we <clears throat> last time we met in, in in london we talked about the idea of a pilot cam entrepreneurs event to reactivate that community and um if you could just update me and also like maybe describe what you could see that bringing to bringing to london if we managed to bring together entrepreneurs who are in the, among the cambridge university alumni together with your your current network and your polish network what 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 that could mean and what the benefits could be that would be that would be great
1: sure so um as i mentioned i see um, while i was i saw this extremely active community when i was a student um, and i saw so many different opportunities for for students to get involved in both in terms of not only Polish society, but kind of entrepreneurial society and like all those other things that were happening at in Cambridge. Since I moved to London, I really felt like there is a little gap in what's currently on offer for, for young professionals or for people who really want to still kind of keep engaged with this active ecosystem, both, um, the Cambridge ecosystem, but the ecosystem of of technology um, companies, the early stage technology companies. And since there are obviously some events that are always hosted by by the tech giants uh, for promotion or other purposes. So yeah, we spoke um, last time about uh, launching or relaunching uh, camp entrepreneurs in London, um, which um, would basically um, aim to bring together um, People who are somehow related to the Cambridge technical ecosystem, or people who want to get to know a little bit more about um, what um, Cambridge um, alumni who work in the technology ecosystem can bring to the table. Um, we will be hosting an event early next year, um, and I believe that uh, I'm uh, I'm quite sure now that we'll be able to host it in Innovation Warehouse um, based in Farringdon, And so we'll definitely be posting more information about that, uh, about the speakers, about what the event will will offer to people who will join us. Uh, but, um, but yeah, come entrepreneurs in London uh, early next year, definitely going to happen. And I hope that at least some people who are listening will be able to join us.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm very excited about this because I think that um you know obviously my Polish network is unusually good the Cambridge net I, I wouldn't say my Cambridge entrepreneurship network is that good because my entrepreneurial life really started I had some tiny businesses when I was at Cambridge but you know I started doing significant things in business after I graduated but thanks to Peter Cowley the Cambridge angels the invested investor and increasingly i'm developing my contacts there i feel that the cambridge network is very powerful the polish polish diaspora polish business network not just in the uk but globally together with the powerhouse that the poland now is I, I think it can bring together worlds who you know could certainly whether it's starting businesses buying things from each other working for each other um investing in each other i just feel there's and multiple things which you know people like you and me can bring together and I've, I've also got the TED, TEDx uh, event experience where um, this is there are ways of running events where you appreciate that the value of the event isn't just the people on stage although TED and TEDx make a huge effort to have great great talks it's also sort of UX for events making sure that there's no wasted time that the events are useful and enjoyable and fun so so it's, it's something I'm looking forward to doing that and the sooner you have a date in January in mind the better for me because okay. then I'll put it in my diary and I'll make sure make sure I come and if anyone anyone watching this or listening online is interested um provided you can contribute to the event you don't have to be a Cambridge university student or alumni to attend just just get in touch Um, and I will make sure that you know when the event goes live or or Ola will do the same. Good. So thank you so much for your Saturday morning. Any final message to Project Kashmir's listeners, CAM entrepreneurs' listeners, or any family and friends who are watching or listening to this podcast?
1: Well, I think that the very nice, nice thing that you mentioned is that, um, you know, even if you have a completely different career path idea or um, if you are not extremely positive about like what you are going to do in the future, just embrace opportunities and kind of make sure that you discount any preconceptions you have um, about the the entrepreneurship journey or about working for, some other environment that you have always thought you would be working for.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a perfect end. As, as Gary Vaynerchuk, the celebrated Belarusian immigrant to America, who's making big waves in, in, in sort of being an ambassador for entrepreneurship, says um, the worst thing in your life is to have regrets when you're an old person. And you know if you don't take the opportunities, the only person who will really lose is is you and if you don't try you'll never know and uh, entrepreneurship is like running Every, some some people are brilliant runners when they're born and they don't have to try other people are terrible but if you put the effort in you can increase your capabilities and opportunities and you know one of the key entrepreneurial skills is to find people who are good at the things you're not good at. We can't all be like Ola who's good at land economy and public policy and technology and talking about technology, but if we have some of those skills, um, we can always find partners. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much for your time and I look forward to meeting you again on the show and please give feedback either on our Facebook group or in comments under the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage projectkashmirch.com or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether it's comments on projectkashmirch.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but
1: execution is actually the key. The actual process of
0: meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals. It's about you know um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other. Sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here and in this connected world. We don't need everyone here. But but the, the you know the artists and the designers, the creative they're very much part of what we what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your your creative juices will run, then 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 this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now. Not just from a You know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger.